This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Hi and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters, where we talk all things property. It's Greg Watson here. I'm just recording this from home, so the quality not quite the same as usual, as COVID again uh, interrupts things a little bit for us. Quite a bit of real estate news this week, and I'm just going to go through my usual roundup, I guess, of articles that we've had in the last week or so. One thing that I was reading recently was actually about uh, properties at Mount Monganui, very popular spot there. Uh, it's become popular for people purchasing from Auckland. It's always been a nice spot for holidaying and for getting away to holiday homes. So this article by Anne-Marie Quill says, Rich Lister sells Mount Monganui penthouse for a record price. And the sale of a penthouse apartment at Mount Monganui for $10.2 million has set a new record for the region, which continues to be in hot demand despite the property market cooling in other parts of the country. The 422 square metre penthouse, which includes an infinity swimming pool on the rooftop and overlooks New Zealand's best beach, according to the article, was sold in a private sale by automobile tycoon and rich lister Sir Colin Giltrap to Tauranga businessman Sir Paul Adams. The penthouse is on top of the 11 complex at 11 Monganui Road, comprising 65 apartments over 11 storeys, and property records show the sale price was just over $10 million plus about $130,000 worth of chattels. And the penthouse's rateable value, which is dated from July 2021, was $6.38 million. So the $10.2 million sale eclipses the previous record for the largest ever sale in the Bay of Plenty, which was set in July 2021, when a house on Marine Parade sold for $9.5 million. And that four-bedroom, three-storey, 540-square-metre home featured an infinity pool, gym, library and underground Hinuera stone wine cellar, uh, and that was sold at the time to a Waikato farming family. So amazing that uh, people pay these sorts of prices. But the article goes on to mention quite a number of uh, penthouses that have sold for uh, upwards of $6 million in that area. And it's, it's quite stunning, really. Um, the article itself's got a whole bunch of beautiful pictures of uh, the ocean and so forth. I haven't personally been to Mount Monganui for quite a number of years and I imagine it's changed quite a bit from uh, where it used to be um, in terms of uh, certainly uh, prices etc even though it's been popular for a long time. The market itself has been slowing in some areas and Manawatu Wanganui is one of those where the rate of growth has been slowing. So what does this mean? This doesn't mean that the market is going down. It just means that it's not growing as quickly. And we've had a couple of years of around 30% per year growth in the median house prices in this region. And that's down now to around about 7% in the last 12 months. So that has come back in response to a number of things which the government has done, making lending more difficult and effectively slowing the housing market. This article, which primarily comes out uh, from the Auckland market, 
uh, on stuff and um, was via Radio New Zealand's Emma Hatton. It says, developers cutting asking prices as the housing market slows. Says the property developers are cutting their asking prices by tens of thousands of dollars as they try to entice buyers amid a slowing market. They are struggling to get construction supplies on time, secure finance and convince buyers to purchase of the plan. Now, not long ago at all, this was very easy to do in terms of the purchasing of the plan and there were long wait times for people in getting started uh, with regards to the, the building of the properties. They quote lawyer Joanna Pigeon from Pigeon Judd who said the market was getting tougher from uh, for developers. She says, we're seeing some smaller developers on sale. Maybe they've bought at a premium, but they're looking to because they can't get their pre-sales. So they're having to cut their losses and move on. And that's something that Lower Hutt real estate agent Shane Brocklebank has seen in his patch. The more well-known developers are now purchasing properties and developments that may already have a resource consent from those smaller players. He said others were asking for longer settlements in an effort to buy time. They were asking for settlement dates out 12 to 18 months, whereas previously they may have only been able to get a three to six month period. So they, they may still be able to pay a decent amount of cash, but they're asking for favourable turns in order to get cash out of other developments in order to settle that one. And that's mirrored by Ray White Manukau real estate agent Tom Rawson, who has also seen greater flexibility when it came to settling. He says everyone is working to facilitate a sale, for instance, asking for an extension if they need an extra month or two to get their ducks in a row. Buyers don't want to default, and for the most part, everyone's being transparent about where they're at. Campbell Venning, who runs a sales company, The Property Factory, and that sells mostly investment properties off plans. He said developers know they might have to knock back the price at the moment in order to get a deal over the line. A lot of them are expecting it because they have been getting, and let's call it, pretty good margins in the last two years. So if they want to move stock because stock's been sitting, they have to drop the price or give some sort of incentive for people to buy. Shane Brocklebank said a recent development in Levin saw developers do just that. He said we'd sold 28 unconditionally before Christmas. After Christmas, we dropped the price on four of those and they sold straight away, which got the developer to the finance position. Joanna Pigeon said banks were also asking developers to limit opportunities for buyers to walk away. So we've seen some developers' banks requiring them to get their sunset clauses date pushed out so purchasers cannot pull out for non-fulfilment. So it's really interesting that uh, the prices or asking prices are coming back and that is something that we have seen in this area, Minotu Wanganui, just in general, uh, the as the market hit the sudden stop or, or a lot of buyers got removed from the market by the uh, Credit Control um, Act or the CCCFA, that really had an overnight effect on, um, on the number of people who were able to lend. And it also had uh, an immediate, uh, another thing that did the immediate effect was the changing of the debt-to-income ratios, which meant that people could not uh, re- then borrow as much as they thought that they could. So this article by Rob Stock of Stuff says, here's the data that reveals the secret home loan pain. So this article says that for every mortgagee sale in the first three months of the year, there are as many as 25 sales of homes by people in mortgage distress. It's been quite a long time, it seems, since we've seen many mortgagee sales 
And it hasn't changed. CoreLogic said last week that there had been just six mortgagee sales in the first quarter. But mortgage advisors say banks are loath to force mortgagee sales. And mortgagee sales data does not accurately reflect the number of people forced to sell after falling on hard times. Instead, they say when households can no longer sustainably afford their home loans, banks let customers sell their properties themselves to avoid the stigma of a mortgagee sale. And data from credit reporting bureau Centrix appears to back that up. It shows that in the first three months of the year there were 152 mortgages closed while 30 or more days in arrears. That's an average of 50 mortgages a month being closed in which borrowers were significantly behind on their repayments compared to an average of two mortgagee sales per month. So it's that massive ratio there. So last year there were 1,182 mortgages closed while three months or more in arrears at the rate of 98 per month. In 2020, the average was 11, 111 a month. In the last three months of 2019, the average was running at 135 per month. So, so that has actually uh, come back a bit. Less people now in that uh, situation. Yet Centric's chief executive, Keith McLaughlin, said not every one of the closed mortgages would represent a family who has fallen off the housing ladder by having to sell their home to repay the bank. Makes you wonder if the media is sort of trying to come up with news here to make it sound worse than it is. He says some property owners may have been able to close their mortgage by refinancing with a non-bank lender, says mortgage advisor Karen Tatterson. They would not be able to refinance with another bank, she said. So some of the closed distressed loans might have been loans secured against investment properties, McLaughlin said. Some may have sold up and used the money to buy cheaper places. There had been a decline in both the number of mortgagee sales and in the number of people behind on their loan repayments. And so the coming months would test whether the rising mortgage rates and high inflation would see those trends continue. And we have noticed a number of banks have uh, put up their interest rates recently as inflation uh, continues to go up and the official cash rate was raised recently and will probably be raised again soon. So this article from Rob Stock of Stuff says that Bank of New Zealand lifts home loan rates. And this came out uh, or is relating to middle of April when the bank increased its floating loan rate from 5.15 to 5.5 following the Reserve Bank's decision to raise the official cash rate from 1% to 1.5. But now, more recently, the BNZ has increased its one-year home loan rate from 4.55 uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, it's raised at 2.455 from 3.99 and the two-year rate to 5.25 from 4.69. Now, these changes can be quite significant for people who have borrowed large mortgages at around about uh, the 25 to 3% rate and they're now getting to the point where um, they are doubling. So when it comes time to fix rates again, uh, the payments those people are making on their mortgages will double we have a large mortgage that's really a considerable strain and we'll probably see that just come through as fixed term rates come off um, and we'll have to see what effect that has. So as well as the rising costs for everything from food to services, homeowners owing money on their homes are having to prepare for higher home loan rates and uh, those rates with BNZ are generally on par with uh, uh, with ANZ and there are some rates that are a little cheaper than that. Westpac's got a one-year rate at about 3.99, but still their two-year rate is 4.79. 
A recent survey from Westpac shows many households are struggling to absorb the cost of living rises. And just over two-thirds of the 1,600 Westpac customers surveyed were confident that they could cope with the rapidly rising cost of living, and more than half are already trimming costs and have gone back to the home economic basics of budgeting and meal planning. But though the majority felt they could cope with high inflation, nearly a third feared they would not be able to cope, and 53% of women... 39% of men said they're extremely concerned about the high uh, rising living costs. So what are the main ways in which people, according to the survey, have reduced their costs, just in case this is helpful to you? Cutting out unnecessary or wasteful spending by 58% of the respondents, drawing up a budget by 47%, and shopping at cheaper retailers was 44%. Also, walking, biking or using public transport instead of driving was favoured by 29% of the respondents. So it just shows that change in behaviour. Also, research from ASB showed nearly 4 in 10 people have persistent problems making payments on loans on time, which is interesting as well. And that's something we talked about just in the previous article. So is there a uh, solution to... A situation where people can can get into housing but it's a little bit cheaper. Well, one thing that's been quite popular and in the news quite a lot recently and in the last um, couple of years, I think it's fair to say, is around tiny homes. This article by Colleen Hawkes recently on Stuff asks the question, tiny homes, are they for keeps or just a temporary solution? And there's no denying that the tiny homes industry is fast growing and there are wait lists for new homes and builders are working flat out to meet demand. There's a recent tiny home expo in Auckland which attracted nearly 10,000 people eager to step inside a tiny house and find out more. Personally, I like uh, going to see those homes, not to buy, but just I'm really interested in all their storage and where they put everything just from a construction and design point of view. The article says the soaring property market in recent years is a major incentive to investigate more economic housing solutions, but are people buying for keeps? Tiny Homes Director Charlotte May says it's a big misconception to think the main demographic for the tiny house industry is young people trying to get into the property market, which is I guess what you'd probably think. May says the difficulty many young people face is getting financing for tiny homes and most lenders treat them as vehicles and have caps on lending for personal or vehicle loans. Many lenders also have high interest rates for those types of loans. So May has crunched the numbers from visiting att- from visitors attending the previous tiny home expo held in 2022. She says the largest demographic has become couples and singles over 45 who want to release equity they've built up in traditional property. They're making lifestyle changes to reduce work pressure and reduce time being spent maintaining a larger property. And this demographic generally lives in tiny homes long term. That's quite interesting. Makes sense though. Jamie Cameron of New Plymouth-based NZ Tiny Homes has 11 tiny homes under construction at any one time. He says 8 out of 10 tiny homes sold by the company are put onto piles. In other words, uh, that pretty much means that they're living in it permanently and it's not a temporary solution. Our tiny homes are compliant with the building code, they're inspected, so it's very much like building and living in a house. If they're going to be a second dwelling on the property for mum or for an investment, they are certainly permanent. And there are times where people may live in one while their house is being built, and that can take a couple of years. 
Sheila Boddington, the marketing manager of Shay's Tiny Homes in Auckland, who has ordered a tiny house for herself and her husband, also says retired people or people whose children have flown the coop tend to stay in their houses the longest. Some of them have been in them for many years, she says, and we do have some single dads who've been in their homes for about four years now. First home buyers tend to be the ones who save up while in a tiny house and then go out and buy a new home after a few years. And parents with very... Uh, and parents with very little children tend to want a bigger space when their children get older, uh, but people with a single child often choose to stay in a tiny house for a longer time. So uh, it just shows that it's interesting that the demographic that tends to stay the longest are those who are a little bit older. It does does make sense, though, when it's put into the context of that article. So I found that quite interesting indeed. This article... Now from stuff by Geraldine Can says world watching NZ housing market as Auckland labelled a canary in a coal mine. So what do they mean by this? Effectively, the there's been um excuse me sorry I lost my my computer just uh, stopped so there we go it's uh, started again so international investors are increasingly watching New Zealand's housing market for signs of trouble as an indicator of things to come. With one Australian financial services firm labelling Auckland the canary in the coal mine, high mortgage debts compared to incomes, house price rises that outpaced every other country studied, and the Reserve Bank's aggressive steps to fight inflation have resulted in New Zealand's market being the one to watch, according to multiple analysts, both domestically and across the Tasman. So they're talking specifically about Auckland here. Auckland's unfortunate label came from Baron Joey, an Australian firm providing insights to banks and investors. The firm's research focused on debt-to-income ratios and found almost two-fifths of recent Kiwi home loans were lent out at ratios considered high-risk and curtailed by other countries, including the UK and Ireland. DTI ratios are calculated by dividing the total debt of a borrower by their gross income and are a measure of how leveraged a customer is and therefore how at risk they are if the cost of servicing the mortgage rises. That's what I was talking about earlier, and that um, some mortgage payments could double given interest rates uh, doubling. So the likes of Ireland and the UK have debt-to-income caps between three and a half and four times uh, four and a half times income, and New Zealand customers with a DTI of more than six account for 39% of recent borrowing. Uh, Baron Joey found after analysing Reserve Bank data, Auckland was higher with 51% over half of recent borrowers taking out home loans at debt-income ratios over 6 and a fifth borrowed at debt-income ratios over 8. That's 8 times the borrowings uh, compared to uh, their, uh, their gross incomes. That's pretty scary. So Mint Asset Manager Senior Analyst Michael Keenerly said the canary analogy was pretty dire, but said Australian and other international investors had been keeping an eye on New Zealand's housing market ever since the country led price rises during the pandemic. He describes New Zealand house price increases as astronomic relative to most other developer countries. And on this article, which is on stuff, uh, it shows a, a pretty interesting graph which shows the growth in uh, house prices since 2015. Uh, New Zealand uh, massively heading up there, uh, according to some of these uh, studies. In fact, uh, that's from Macquarie, the Australian bank, who found that 
In the two years since the end of 2019, New Zealand house prices rose 45% compared with rises of 20 to 30% in Australia, Canada, the UK, US, Germany, Sweden and the Netherlands. Macquarie Senior Economist Justin Faber said, uh, had mentioned that investors were also keeping an eye on New Zealand because Reserve Bank had been the most aggressive advanced economy central bank to date in jacking up interest rates to fight inflation. Investors are waiting to see how sensitive both housing and the broader New Zealand economy are to higher interest rates, particularly against a backdrop of high debt income. So we have to see uh, what happens there and things will unfold uh, over the near future. You may recall that I've mentioned here in uh, the Manawatu Wanganui region that uh, the supply and demand situation is somewhat different than that uh, in Auckland and that uh, it's still very strong in terms of people wanting to buy properties in this region. Uh, We have noticed though uh, with the removal of a lot of buyers from the market due to inability to do what they'd previously been able to, um, again the asking prices have just been dropping a bit. Now we're moving on to some landlord and tenant news. This article here on Stuff by Melanie Early says landlord threatened to call Oranga Tamariki on the tenant if rent wasn't paid. So the mind boggles. Says an Auckland landlord harassed her tenant by threatening to call Oranga Tamariki if she didn't pay rent, the tenancy tribunal has found. The tenant, whose name is suppressed by the tribunal, moved into the property with her children and partner on February the 9th, 2021. The tenancy didn't start well, a recently released decision from the tribunal said. Rubbish had been left by previous tenants, and landlord Nahiraka Ruawai Hamilton said the new tenant uh, soon had a falling out. On February 26th, Ruawai Hamilton gave a termination notice to the tenant, saying a family member would be moving into the property. The tenant's partner told the tribunal Ruawai Hamilton had gone from being happy to kicking the tenant out in two weeks for no reason. I've watched the landlord trying to force her way in with key entry numerous times and this terrifies my children. Tribunal adjudicator Rex Woodhouse said he believed Ruawai Hamilton's motivation to serve the notice to the tenant was at least partly due to the tenant asserting her rights. The first notice was given 18 days into the tenancy. If the landlord wished to have the premises for herself, and would be expected to have known that before the tenancy began. It's likely to be the case the tenant asserting her rights has inflamed the landlord who appears to believe that her rights as landlord are greater than what they are. The tenant said Ruawai Hamilton sent her multiple text messages, some were threatening or religious in nature. She said Ruawai Hamilton also contacted her partner's employer, resulting in him no longer being offered work, as well as contacting her children's school and complaining about the tenant to work and income and Oranga Tamariki, which is incredible. Ruawai Hamilton admitted she contacted Oranga Tamariki and said it was because she was concerned after hearing yelling. She also said she sent religious texts to the tenant's partner who appreciated the communication. She also said she called the tenant's partner's employer as the tenant wasn't replying. <laughs> so what happened with all this? Woodhouse said he had no reservation in finding Ruawai Hamilton had harassed the tenant and he agreed the intrusion onto the tenant's life had been excessive. Records show that landlord undertook unusually frequent inspections of the property and on top of that would attend the tenancy for other reasons such as gardening. The tenant also described episodes where landlord was parked on tenancy grounds but wouldn't leave on the tenant's request. Ruawai Hamilton contacting Oranga Tamariki was a very troubling aspect of the case, Woodhouse said. The agencies were contacted or threatened to be contacted as a means of getting the tenant to do something landlord wanted her to do, such as to pay the rental money. 
the reporting or threat of reporting would be considerably stressful, particularly taking into account it involves the child of the tenant. It's clear to me the tenant is now wanting to move out because of the stress the landlord has caused. And so Woodhouse ordered Railway Hamilton to pay the tenant $875 and also issued a restraining order against her, ordering her not to harass the tenant uh, until at least after November 2022. It's a quite an incredible story there and what goes on sometimes and here's another one of a bad landlord. It says, Auckland landlord ordered to pay thousands after leaks left room uninhabitable. So the landlord has been ordered to pay thousands to tenants of a South Auckland property after water leaks left a room in their home uninhabitable for over a month. The occupants of a Mangiri East home had to sleep in their lounge after water leaked into their home from the roof and floor, saturating their walls, bedding and carpets, the Tenancy Tribunal heard. The stench from the sodden carpet and bedding left the bedroom uninhabitable, the Tribunal found in its recently released decision. The leaking water also damaged electronics, including a laptop and television. The tenants, whose names were suppressed, contacted the landlord several times between February the 16th and April the 19th, 2021, and told him about the situation. When the landlord eventually sent a person around to fix a leak of the roof, the repairman said the roof had been patched previously with tape to seal holes, according to the tribunal. Incredible. The repairman then told the tenants he was a concrete layer, not a roofer, but had still been asked to fix the roof, and after he left, the roof continued to leak. An electrician who was sent out to look at the sparking electrical switches and sockets in the bedroom said the house was dangerous and recommended it be rewired, the tribunal heard. On top of that, a hot water cylinder burst on two occasions in June 2021 and the landlord left it spilling water under the house for days. When tenants spoke to the landlord about the raft of problems with the house, the landlord reportedly told them it's a good thing you're moving out sooner rather than later then. In issuing her order, the Tenancy Tribunal adjudicator Jane Northwood found there had been ongoing complaints from the tenants and at best a temporary fix was made. She said... The floor kept leaking when it rained, the hot water cylinder was left to pour out water for weeks and no help was offered to dry out the carpets and walls. It's incredible, isn't it? Absolutely. The tenants also said the landlord had on two occasions sent tradespeople to work on the house without notifying them or gaining consent. On a third occasion, the landlord walked into their home without telling them he was visiting and without even knocking. Northwood ordered the landlord to pay the former tenants $4,320, and that included a rent reduction of $900 for the six weeks the bedroom was uninhabitable, as well as a raft of exemplary damage that's $750 for unlawful entry, $250 for failure to comply with healthy home standards, and $2,400 for failing to maintain the home in a reasonable state of repair. So landlords, be very careful. You need to be looking after the tenants, and it's uh, really not acceptable to leave these things uh, according to Tenancy Tribunal. And they take the tenants' health as they should and well-being in homes uh, very seriously indeed. So that's all we've got time for this week on Property Matters. It's been lovely having your company. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back in studio next week at mpr.nz. And you can also find this where all good podcasts are found. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.